0: So welcome to the Next Gen Cast, and this is episode 15. Before we start, just a quick note to say that we've still got lots of new programs opening up virtually over the coming months in Essex, Norwich, Staffordshire, and also very excited to say we've got our first program in Wales coming up soon as well. So if you want to hear more about those or you know people who might be interested in joining, just subscribe to our monthly bulletin at bit.ly forward slash nggp bulletin and that link is in the show notes. So today's conversation is with David Richmond who was a recommendation to me from Sir Bruce Keogh when I interviewed him earlier on in the podcast. David is currently a non-executive director at Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital. David spent the bulk of his career as medical director of Liverpool Women's Hospital before his election as vice president and then president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists from 2013 to 2016. During this role, he was absolutely instrumental in delivering the first National Outcome Report for Maternity, which is now the National Maternal and Perinatal Audit Programme. Which, as you'll see, is just a really fascinating and very impressive example of how clinicians can impact care in leadership roles. So David's going to talk about this, he'll talk about how and why he got to become president of the Royal College and what that job really involves and some of the lessons that he's learned along the way. So here's David Richmond. David, welcome to the Next Gen cast and thank you very much for doing this. I mean, we've never actually physically crossed paths in real life, but we're here because Professor Sir Bruce Keogh, who I interviewed a few months ago, when he finished recording with me, he said, Nish, you should speak to somebody that I work with called David Richmond for your podcast. And I said, yes, thank you very much. I will do that without asking any more about you, because that's just what one does when Bruce Keogh recommends someone. I then decided to ask him why. And he said, that you were an extremely thoughtful, pragmatic, and a values based leader. So I'm very intrigued to learn more about you. Thank you for doing this. And I'm sorry if you felt that you had no choice after a recommendation like that. So David, I thought maybe we could start with perhaps for people who don't know you that well. Imagine that it's pre-COVID and we've crossed paths somewhere. Perhaps um Bruce has introduced us and then, as often happens with him, gets pulled off to something else. How would you introduce yourself to me?
1: I am um, of what I feel at the moment sometimes is a very ancient retired obstetrician and gynecologist who retired for I think three weeks and felt, hang on, there's an awful lot more I can. To give back to the NHS. And so, right now, I am a non executive director at Birmingham Women and Children's Hospital. I've been there for nearly three years. Uh, I am the national lead for GERFT for maternity and gynecology. And I am one of two ambassadors for GERFT. Sorry, that means getting it right first time in the southwest of England. Um, and that keeps me out of mischief, usually for two or three days a week. But with Zoom, it seems to have mushroomed to the full week. In the past, I was president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists for three years. It's vice president. And before that, I was medical director at Liverpool Women's Hospital for 17 years. And before that, I was doing lots of training around the country, around the world in obstetrics and gynecology, which I loved.
0: Thank you, David. That is it's a very useful overview. And I want to actually dive right in and think, you know, uh, you have, you've had some extremely esteemed positions. At what point in your career did you think of yourself as a leader?
1: Probably never, <laughs> uh, to be honest. These things, other people must have thought I was a leader. So I ended up being lots of things at school. I was captain of this and captain of that, but I never thought I was good enough. I remember when I'd been, a, I'd been a consultant for something like three years by that stage, and we were going through a huge merger of hospitals in Liverpool. And the senior consultant at the time said to me, I think you should be medical director. And I sort of looked at him and thought, medical director, I'm only 41 or 42 or something. I can't possibly do that. I've only been a consultant for a few years. So I said to him, right, I'll only do it if you go around the colleagues in the city, of which there must have been about 40 or 50. And make sure I've got a mandate to be medical director. And sure enough, three weeks later, he called me in and um, he said, yes, you have a mandate and I want you to do it. So I did it. And then I often reflected, I'm sure he never asked anybody. (laughs) And then, you know, things happen. And I'm sure they will in your career when you move, you, you know, you change tack and things appear and you think, well, shall I go for it? Or I don't know whether I'm good enough. Shall I do a vice presidency job? Yeah. go. Shall I become president? What would I do? And, I've never actually thought, yeah, that's the job for me, and I'll be so terribly disappointed if I don't get it. These were always aspirational things that I thought were a natural progression in my career. But as far as assuming the mantle of being a leader, I've certainly enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, But it probably goes back many, many years, probably almost 50 years to when I was at school.
0: So you mentioned there a few times, David, you said you didn't know if you were good enough. So mm. what, what helped you overcome that voice in your head and say yes?
1: Actually achieving your goals. So becoming a doctor, becoming an obstetrician, applying for a postgraduate thesis and getting the money, getting the job, uh, being appointed a consultant. Being appointed medical director, so each of these things all along the way sort of give you more confidence in your in your position and in your standing.
0: did you have times when you then took the position when the questions would arise again?
1: Uh, yes, but then I would always uh, fall back on the that these these were significantly senior jobs that needed dealt with, so whether it was being medical director, being vice president, being president of a, a huge college internationally, there were things that you would have to undertake, whether it be locally in, uh, with ministers in, in, in London or with uh, clinical colleagues around the country or overseas, decisions that had to be taken. and hang on, I was appointed to this job. I was elected to this job, so yes, you are good enough and you got on and did it and 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 that was often the way that i i think i performed at my best
0: um so looking back over your career did you come across dilemmas where you were trying to balance the clinical work with the leadership roles i'm interested to know your reflections on that balance between the clinical and the leadership
1: yeah i mean that's a super question um and i think really really important because your fundamental uh, responsibility is to your patients and so as medical director, I was absolutely adamant, which I'm not sure would be possible now, that I wanted to maintain some sort of clinical credibility. So that meant seeing patients and operating. So that I would give two days of my week to be medical director, and the other days of the week, sometimes three days, sometimes five days, to being a clinician, operating, doing ward rounds, teaching students, doing clinics, et cetera, et cetera. When I became president, then this it switched because the president's job was really seven days a week. So it was probably right up until I was president that I carried on doing some clinical work. But you're right, it is a balance. But I always put the patient first. I mean that might seem a little bit trite, but hang on, that's what we're there for. So you know you couldn't abrogate that responsibility. Um, just because you fancied being on council for college, or you wanted to be the vice president, you just had to work twice as hard.
0: Thank you. That's a it's a good reminder, really, that our responsibility is to our patients first, despite the leadership opportunities that we may come across. Mm. as you As you reduced your clinical time, did you ever feel a bit second rate as a clinician, or did your colleagues ever allude to the fact that you weren't there?
1: No because they they would they would hear you or either on the news or on the front <laughs> front page of the Telegraph or the Guardian or, or something like that, um, and I was quite communi- I, I was quite savvy from a communication point of view from the college, and when I did go back to the hospital as vice president, I would share that level of information and meetings that i'd been to with my colleagues in the hospital so they benefited from it in that regard and the executive would also benefit the board would also benefit so there were some there were some benefits to the hospital from those positions definitely
0: did you have colleagues or people saying david you're in this role why can't you do something about this or that
1: yeah yeah all the time
0: (laughs) how did you manage that
1: yeah there were a few um the direction of travel of the nhs the workforce issues the trainee numbers were probably the most the most difficult really to deal with partly because you you could only advise and you didn't necessarily have the ability to change things my job would be to raise increasingly raise areas of concern not from ones and individuals which i did get regularly but from the 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 body of the kirk if you like of the consultant body in the United Kingdom. So you would get emails, you'd get letters and gradually, hang on, there's a problem here. We need to look at it. We need to spend more time dealing with this. You would get individuals who would occupy an enormous amount of your time who had a particular bee in their bonnet about something. And you had to be terribly careful. And sometimes that was quite hard. And I can think of several occasions where you know, I really struggled with you know, what was the answer to the question that I was being asked, not by lots and lots of people, but by one or two who were enthusiasts.
0: I'd like to dig a bit deeper, actually, if you don't mind, David, I'm quite curious about your role as president. You mentioned there, your job was to raise areas of concern. So uh, am I right in saying it wasn't your job to fix those areas, particularly, but to highlight them? And, And if so, was that frustrating at all? Because you 're kind of raising concern about things that perhaps are not within your direct control so much
1: yeah okay let's uh, i 'll just see if I can give you one or two examples i don 't want to yes, please. please stop me if i 'm going on The NHS in the u k is fundamentally run by doctors and nurses and midwives the, the, although although the authority rests with the consultants and the responsibility lasts with the consultant, we demand an enormous amount of Service delivery from trainee doctors. And we don't have enough. We haven't got enough medical staff to deliver the sort of care that I wanted to provide. And that was becoming increasingly a problem with a gradual reduction in the cohort of trainees that were allocated to Obsangaini on an annual basis. So the slice of the big cake of medical school output was being cut ever, ever slimmer. And so the slice that Obzangaini got dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. And yet the demands from uh, complexity, from comorbidity, from reduction in junior doctor's hours to one desire for flexible training, part-time training, less than full-time training, um, was were, were huge issues. We also had a, a huge feminization of the workforce, which I was incredibly supportive of. But we also had to recognize that quite a lot of trainees increasingly wanted to do less than full-time training. They wanted to take time out to do postgraduate training, postgraduate degrees and MDs and PhDs. And they wanted to have a family. And that was increasingly difficult to service with a falling number of trainees. And I still don't think we've got it right. And I think that's a major issue. Now, could I resolve it? Probably not at the time. And that was a huge Uh, disappointment for me, because it's still a problem today. Now, a separate example might be something which was dear to my heart, which was uh, stillbirth and perinatal death. So we had a significant number of babies who were dying on an annual basis. When I started as president, it was probably about 4,000 a year. And then there would be a significant number of babies that would die in the first week and the first month of life, neonatal deaths. Combined together, you have the perinatal mortality. And at that time, it was about seven per thousand. Now, bearing in mind, we were delivering about 800,000 babies in the United Kingdom on an annual basis. That's an awful lot of babies that sadly don't make it. And I remember having conversations with Jeremy Hunt at the time, and he was, you know, what can what can the, the the colleges do to reduce this? And I said, well, it's 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 multifactorial. We need to do it together with the midwives. We need to be working collaboratively in a multidisciplinary manner. And I think the question you've asked me, Jeremy, is too big. I think I would be perfectly happy happily focusing on a cohort of this. So we focused on those babies who reached nine months, who reached term, that die on the labor ward in the United Kingdom. So they come in alive, but they die. Those babies that die in the first week of life at term, and there's nothing the matter with them. And then there's a whole cohort of babies that sadly are born in poor condition and don't do well during their infancy and childhood. And I wanted to concentrate on those. and. Uh, quite I was quite proud at the time, but we managed to get some money from the DH actually on the back of this argument, and we set up each Baby Counts, a program where we would try and concentrate our energies in trying to look at this cohort of mums who lost their babies and I'm pleased to say that it was adopted by one hundred percent of the maternity units of the United Kingdom, so the clinicians, whether it's a doctor or a midwife, embraced the concept of what we were trying to do. And within the space of, I think it was probably six months, every single unit in the United Kingdom had brought into this and it continues to this day. And it has reduced the perinatal mortality rate as a consequence. So that attention to a a large problem, but a small cohort, involving the clinicians at the coalface who recognize that there is a problem and they want to do something about it, got significant traction and has continued.
0: That's such a powerful example of clinical leadership. That is so inspiring. I I was thinking as you said that, what's particularly impressive about that is the sustainability of it as well. Do you think when you look back at that, do you think you could, and here's total permission to blow your own trumpet, which I'm gathering from already is probably not your style, but personal attributes maybe that you have as a leader that has helped you to to achieve something like that?
1: I, again, I, I I don't, it sounds trite when I don't mean to. I thought of the patients or the couples or the women and their partners. You know, I can't imagine. Well, I have seen it, so I can imagine the uh, extraordinary experience that you have as a clinician in having to deliver a woman of a dead baby. That is just horrendous. Nobody teaches you how to manage it nobody teaches you how to manage that I've seen couples come back where the baby's obviously significantly handicapped because of something that went wrong and I think we need we needed to be more transparent I'm sort of losing the thread of your question so I, apologize.
0: I I think that's your modesty because I was asking you about personal leadership traits and you've, got it, you've done what what great leaders do and brought it back to the issue at hand which in this case is the patients. but what it is a beautiful illustration of is I imagine that wasn't an easy journey what you achieved and yet it's such a tangible picture that you're painting of how this has impacted the people that you're looking after which is really why we do leadership it's about it's always about the people at the receiving end of that
1: yes and and I remember going to a number of of charitable organizations that were involved in this sad area of childbirth and being overwhelmed often by the patient stories that would be brought to you. And I think it was discussions at the college with senior other clinical colleagues and the pressure from Jeremy Hunt at the time to try and, you know, you've got to sort it. You've got to try and find a solution. So I just rephrased his concerns into an, an exam question that I thought we could answer in a time period, and then I got the best people around to help us.
0: I'm, I'm quite curious to, to ask you about the way you handled our friend Mr. Hunt, but politicians more broadly in your time as president, and perhaps beyond that, is there anything that you've learnt that perhaps would be useful for people to hear about in terms of lessons of of how to how to work alongside politicians?
1: I think the only Secretary of State at the time in my presidency was Jeremy Hunt. And I think I wished we had maybe had a meeting early doors to agree a, a series of priorities that he had or they had in government and that we had as a specialty. And I don't think I did that quickly enough. I think one also has to recognize that in politics things happen you know like that you know and it's not it's half an hour or an hour they want you or they want an opinion or they want an answer and you get summoned and you have a, a a conversation and there were different levels of conversation you had a conversation which was around a round table or you had a conversation on the settee and the cups of tea and it was much more informal It depended upon the speed of the information that was required and what sort of discussion you were having. But I I always found politicians incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, the breadth of knowledge that they've got is astonishing, (laughs) absolutely astonishing. I think maternity is, and this is something which I learned on becoming president of the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, is that 75% of the time it's maternity care. And only 25% is gynae. And I was really a gynaecologist rather than being an obstetrician. So you have to learn quite quickly what is required. So you make sure you get lots of of senior obstetricians around you to help you with that information.
0: And if there was someone who was working for you, David, that's perhaps junior to you, maybe that's going into a meeting with a politician in the way that you did and says, David, I need some advice. I've I've never been in this position before. What would you say to them?
1: Uh, why are you going? What's the question either that you've got or they've got? What is it that they want to know from you? And make sure you know your detail, you've done your homework in the extreme. So it's like presumably going into a viva at university.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) You know, you know it. And you know that you know it more than they do it. Make sure that you're not too verbose because they're in a short time frame. It's a bit like the elevator pitch. You've got three things. You've got to get them over in five seconds. Uh, short, sharp, succinct, to the point. Um, if you're invited for tea and biscuits and you're <laughs> sitting in the to tea, then you've got more time. <laughs> you pick that up quite quickly, but you won't know that till you get in the front door.
0: That's good advice. Thank you. And on the, on the similar vein to the politicians, the media, was there anything you learned, David, in your, in your roles about handling the media?
1: Yeah. Um, I learned to be incredibly careful. I learned to have all my ducks in a row as far as information in advance. Sometimes I would practice with our comms and media people in advance. So certainly I had quite a lot of media training for the visual Interviews. For the spoken interviews, they were easier. And for the meetings like this, they were even easier still. You just have to be very careful. Would I trust them? Mm. Probably probably not. (laughs) I remember one which I've got somewhere which said, Top doctor wants to shut 50% of the maternity units. Or front page of the um, Guardian, (laughs) big, bold headlines. And I I never said that. And when you read the text, it became apparent that what I was suggesting was that we had too many isolated small units which were difficult to man. Travel was, if transportation was required because there was a problem, they were difficult. And maintaining expertise in these small units was hard. So I was, I think. I was, uh, this was four or five years ago. I wasn't particularly keen on a, on the plethora of maternity units that we had around the country. I thought we should have a smaller uh, a smaller number. But I don't think I ever said fifty percent. But that's what appeared in in the Guardian newspaper.
0: And looking back at your time, um, maybe we'll stick with the, the time as president. Uh, I was, I thank you for sharing that story of what sounds like your proudest moment, but do you mind if I ask, and I only ask um, because I think it's often where huge learning lies, but is there anything that you perhaps would have done differently?
1: Okay. Um, uh, I sold the college. The building. So yeah, but we couldn't afford to stay there. So we had, it was a leasehold to the crown estate And it had, I think, something like 39 years on its lease before we'd have to renegotiate. And we had it on a peppercorn rent. So we were paying nothing to to reside there. And obviously, the lease in itself had a value which was diminishing the longer we stayed there. And if we ended up staying there for 39 more years, we'd have ended up with no equity and a Demand for rent, probably 10 times what we were paying. So there was considerable pressure to increase the rent. We didn't have any more money to pay for it. So my view was very much that we needed to sell it. But articulating that was extraordinarily difficult. And I had loads of battles with past presidents and other. Other consultants, mostly from London, I have to say, who were totally anti the whole threat of selling the college. So I got the communication wrong. I pitched it wrong. I should have come out with the facts of why we needed to do it properly, have a little bit of discussion, have a debate, open it up a bit more. And then we might have ended up in the same place as we are, but with um, an easier path. So that was probably the most, one of the most difficult things I did.
0: So do you mean sort of have a more collaborative decision-making yeah. process? Well, yeah. that's, that's a very useful example because I'm thinking already of times when maybe the end goal is you're, you're quite convinced by it, but yeah. actually that everybody needs to go through the steps to get there. And that's often but, tempting to skip. I've done that myself.
1: <laughs> well, interestingly, and it, this only wasn't apparent, to me, ignorantly, that it's the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. It's not the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology. So it's a membership organisation of sixteen thousand consultants around the world, who most of many of whom will have sat their exams in the college. So they looked upon it as their club rather than an entity for the benefit of obstetrics and Gynaecology nationally so there's a subtle difference there and I didn't really pay enough attention to the membership bit I leapfrogged it
0: Mm, I suppose that is where being the lead of a membership organization can be difficult because you've got to think about taking people with you even for decisions that probably seem really clear-cut to you I want to ask something else that occurred to me as you were talking about all the different roles that you've done we talked about balancing clinical and leadership work and alongside all of that there's there's work at home so I'd like to I'd like to ask your reflections on how you balanced the the incredibly busy roles that you've held and the important work that you've done with with life outside of work
1: (laughs) My, (laughs) my 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 kids I like cooking and my kids Are delighted that, for example, I'm Zoom and Microsoft Teams bound at the moment, so I can do lots of cooking for them. Oh, they've only got two left now, but there were there's five five children, so I quite enjoy cooking for them. And they often reflected on the number of times they would go to McDonald's or have (laughs) carryouts when I I wasn't present. So they're quite like that. Um, I have to say, it was it's been sometimes it's hard, but. I, it was only for a finite period of time. Sometimes you work late in the evening. Sometimes you work weekends. And I have to say, my wife was incredibly understanding. And I think together we had agreed that this was a three or six year job. And I think when I became vice president, she was surprised. And then we, I said to her, well, I might apply for the presidency. And I said, "Oh there's no chance someone else unlike oh, I, I won't be getting it and then when I did get it, she said, "Oh my God, I love three years, <laughs> but uh, you do it together um, keeping contact with friends can be challenging, but you may you make lots of other friends you know you in life you move on, don't you yeah. the friends that I had at school and at university are different from the ones that i 've got now, necessarily but i I always try to maintain an interest in Things outside medicine, whether it was walking, climbing, skiing, cycling. I, I, and I still do that to this day. I still, my sometimes my legs and my hips won't allow me to do the things I would like to do. But <laughs> I still got lots of pictures that remind me of things that I used to do.
0: And how, we we, we, t- we talked briefly before we started recording about Zoom fatigue. How are you finding the balance at the moment?
1: I think that no meetings should go back to back.
0: Hmm.
1: I think we should have a minimum of 15 minutes between each meeting. I'm not enjoying constant uh, screen time. I mean, there's obviously interaction like you and I now, but you miss the, I don't know, it's it's the room, what people are wearing, the smells, Hmm. uh, all sorts of things that we're missing, which are part and parcel of life.
0: So David, I want to ask the final three questions, if you don't mind, that we're asking everyone that comes on the podcast. So the first is, could you recommend a book or a leadership resource to people listening that you found helpful?
1: Oh, God. I don't think I've ever read a book on leadership, if I was honest. There are plenty of books that I think, wow. There was one. I remember Clive Woodward was a rugby player. He wrote a book. I think it was called Winning or to win, something like that. And he talked about what I've used subsequently. There are plenty of of able people, be it in medicine or in rugby. And there are plenty of stars in medicine and in rugby. But he was only allowed to develop a team of, let's say, 15, or I think it was 30, when he went to Australia. And in order to make his team gel, and worked to the best of their performance, he had to offload some really senior people who were really, really good, but he called them negative wizards who kept whinging and moaning about X, Y, and Z. And their cups were always half empty than half full. And by offloading them, which got quite a lot of criticism in the national press at the time, the team was successful because the, 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 the sum of the parts was better than the individuals and it was a great example uh so that was in that so that's a, that that that's a good read good book you.
0: You. i love reading about people so that sounds really interesting although i'm not a rugby fan but i will check that one out i don't know if you've read harry potter but um what you are alluding to have you heard of the dementors that suck well, that's my leadership recommendation to you, David, oh, is to read Harry Potter. But the uh, the dementors that suck life out of everything are similar to the negative wizards, I think. I think that's, that's very true. Um. So the second of the final three is, can you tell me about a leader that you admire and why? Don't say Bruce, because everybody says Bruce on this podcast. Oh, I'm certainly
1: not going to say Bruce. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's
1: not fair. Um. A leader that I admire, somebody uh, contemporaneously was me, was the American college president who became the president of FIGO, uh, Jeannie Conroy. And she was from the West Coast, but had a, she was a super person. She was a super connection. She led by example. She spoke eloquently. And she was a star, and I really, you know, hold my hat off to her.
0: And the final question, David, is what would be your top tips for new clinical leaders?
1: Be fair. Can I have more than three?
0: You absolutely may. I can never say (laughs) no, David.
1: (laughs) I think clinical credibility, I think, is, 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 is valuable. I think be fair. And honest listen often more than you speak be discreet and my wife would support that often I would tell her anything and get a team of like-minded professionals around you and that might mean hiring and firing but a good team is essential
0: Thank you very much, David. I think that's a fantastic note to end on. And I'm I'm going to go back to Bruce and say thank you for the introduction to him, (laughs) because I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. And I I really liked learning about your leadership journey. Um, Most people we get on this podcast are GPs. And actually, it's quite nice to have a surgeon in a general practice world or an obstetrician in a a general practice world. um, And to reflect on someone who's had such an esteemed career and has clearly achieved so much. And what Bruce said about your thoughtfulness and your pragmatism and your values seems absolutely true. So thank you
1: very much. I I, I hold him in high regard. I'll get back at him one day. um, (laughs) Thank you for your time. And thank you for being so pleasant. And I've enjoyed talking to you as well. So thank you.
0: So that was episode 15 of The Next Gen Cast with David Richmond. I really enjoyed hearing about what it's like to be president of a Royal College and how you get there. But more than anything, I think I was struck by his really tangible example of what clinicians can achieve in leadership roles with the maternity work that he's done and the wide reaching impact that continues to have the way that he set it up in such a way that it's still sustainable and really kept the patient at the heart of everything that he did i think maintaining clinical credibility is also a really important part of how he managed to be successful in his roles as ever i'd also love to hear what you thought what were your take-home messages so do get in touch if you'd like to you can email us you can tweet at nextGGP, and if you like the podcast we'd be very grateful if you could subscribe and share it with someone else perhaps That's all for this week and we'll see you next time for episode 16.